Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. You're a confident guy, uh, John. The consumer confidence number just came out from a conference board. Man, spot right on the forecast. Wow. Came in at 114.8. That was right in line with expectations. And notably, it was a lot higher than last month, which was revised down to 108. So nice pickup there. Um, let's break it down with somebody who kind of knows what's happening here. Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board, joins us via Zoom. Dana, it looks like a solid number. Put, the, put it in context for us. Absolutely. We have the highest reading on consumer confidence in two years. A lot of it was led by the present situation where consumers are feeling good about their jobs. They're feeling good about the business situation, but also consumers are thinking that maybe we won't have a recession. And that also contributed to expectations, which were above that threshold that usually signals recession. Yeah. Before you uh, came on, Dana, we did the uh, Jolt's job opening survey. More evidence the labor market is just cooking along. How much does that play into this? We think it plays a huge role. Consumers continue to say that the labor market is good. Um, even most of last year, they said the present situation was fine with regards to the labor market. Many of them are working. Companies are not letting people go because they're concerned about labor shortages. And so that's been benefiting the consumer and definitely supporting their finances and their incomes. And Dana, it's it's interesting here. We're getting, you know, as interest rates come down, like just take the mortgage rate. Mortgage rates are, are coming down off their peak. They're still a lot higher than probably people would like, though. But um, everybody's got a job but wants one. Um, where are you looking at this economy to get a sense of really where it is and where it might be going here? Sure. So, I mean, you have to look at the economy, uh, look under the hood. So there are definitely areas of weakness. The housing market is still pretty weak um, as mortgage rates have come off, but they're still much higher, almost double what we saw pre-pandemic or even 
during the worst of the pandemic, um, businesses are not investing that much. And we don't think government is going to be as big of a stimulator. But when you look at consumers, many of them are working, as we said, their real incomes are rising as inflation is falling. And so that's definitely uh, propping up spending. But the key issue is, can they continue to do so? And we're not sure about that, given the amount of debt that's being piled up right now. Okay, and these numbers also, to some extent, because they are good numbers, might actually be inflationary. You did mention consumer spending, right? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, in the write-ins, consumers continue to complain about inflation and prices. So the price level is high, even though inflation prices aren't rising as quickly as they were. But the good news is that inflation expectations continue to fall in our measure. And that's a signal that consumers um, are thinking that inflation is going to continue to decline. And so it might not be inflationary, despite the fact that we have seen some pretty strong consumption, especially in the second half of last year and in the last two months of last year. Can you explain why those inflation expectations are important? I mean, do they tend to be sort of self-fulfilling prophecies? Well, it can be. If inflation expectations are too high, then people um, say, well, you know, I'm I'm just not going to spend because I can't afford it and I probably won't be able to afford things in the future. So with the expectations falling, that means consumers are thinking, oh, I'm going to get some relief later on. So that means I don't have to put my life on hold while I watch prices rise even faster. So, Dana, at the conference board, are you guys thinking there's going to be a, a recession in 2024 or or not? How do you think about that? Well, we do think the likelihood of a soft landing has definitely increased, but we're still there's still risks out there that you could have a recession. It could it's probably going to be short, it's probably going to be shallow. Why do we think that? Again, consumers do no longer have the massive supports from the stimulus checks. Also, many consumers are financing their purchases with debt. At some point, that's going to come due and they have to pay it back. Um, we also think that some businesses may come under pressure and start letting people go. And that will definitely put a debt in confidence and also spending. But the key thing is the labor market. Um, if the labor market doesn't weaken much further, then you're probably going to see people continue to spend and we'll have that soft landing that the Fed is hoping for. Are all the consumers created equal or do you break this down into certain groups geographically or uh, income wise? Yes, we do. And in fact, every income group, with the exception of the, the wealthiest group, uh, were more optimistic in January. Um, so that's definitely good news. Not sure what's going on with the wealthier folks. Um, They're but wealthier. Certainly... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is that, for the most part, um, consumers expect interest rates to be lower, and they expect the stock market to be higher going forward. So you know, the folks who tend to have stocks are, are the wealthier folks. But the point is that every age group uh, was, felt, was feeling better in the month. So for the most part, consumers are much more optimistic now than they were a few months ago. Um, can I just real quick, uh, the political implications, ah. what, what does it mean for a Joe Biden presidency? Well, I will say the election is months away and that's kind of like an eternity, right? In terms of political terms. But, you know, the key thing is, um, you know, it's probably going to be domestic issues and, and things like the border and spending that may cause consumers to come out there and vote one way or the other. Um, and but certainly if, you know, the economy does take a bit of a swoon, we think it's going to be in the middle of this year. And by the time we get to the election season, the economy should be recovering. 
and that's that's good for for either candidate really all right dana thank you so much we appreciate that dana peterson uh, at the conference board trading at schwab is now powered by ameritrade bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills access new online courses insightful webcasts articles engaging videos and more all curated just for traders Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. In addition to all the economic data we have this week, in addition to all the earnings we have this week from some big tech companies, um, we also have a Federal Reserve meeting tomorrow. And I think I saw Michael Barr, I mean, uh, Michael McKee, with his bag heading down to the Acela uh, station. Well, maybe. there's a Michael Barr on the Fed, too. He's just I know. <laughs> exactly. We're all Not the one you were thinking of. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist Ira Jersey joins us from uh, Princeton, New Jersey via Zoom. So, uh, Ira, I guess tomorrow, I, you know, obviously the rate, any movement in the rates is not expected tomorrow. What are you looking for in tomorrow's release and in the commentary from Fed Chairman Jay Powell? Yeah, tomorrow's going to be a very busy day for those of us in rates land. We uh, not only have that Fed meeting, but also uh, the quarterly refunding announcement from the Treasury Department in the morning before that. Um, so at the Fed, you know, we're going to be looking, listening for nuance. I think the statement probably doesn't change very much. Um, but Jay Powell, I think, will probably you know, need to guide the market as to whether or not they think there's going to be a cut in March or not. Um, he's going to probably say every meeting is live, but at the same time, you know, some meetings are more live than others, I would say. So, uh, so, so I, I think that if, if the, the Fed is thinking about cutting in March, he really has to make that uh, not abundantly clear, but I think he has to make it a little bit more clear uh, that, that they're go going to be uh, going to be cutting at, at, at in March. The other thing that I think that Jay, to listen for for Jay Powell is what's the path thereafter? So the market is not pricing for what Governor Waller mentioned uh, a week and a half ago or so, which is we're not going to necessarily go at every meeting. We're going to go slow. We might only cut three times this year. Um, the market doesn't believe that they're going to do that. The market thinks that the Fed going slow is cutting 25 basis points every meeting once they start. And so it, it, you know, it's going to be hard maybe to jawbone that, but I think Jay Powell will try to tomorrow. 
What's the big worry at the Fed? Some sort of, uh, I don't know, Arthur Burns bumble? You, you cut now and then inflation comes roaring back and you look like a moron? I think that's part of it. Uh, I, I think that the, the other issue that the, the Fed has is they're trying, as they try to calibrate the Fed funds rate is there's a, a feeling among a lot of economists and I think a lot of people at the Federal Reserve that as inflation comes down, uh, you have the real Fed funds rate, so the Fed funds rate after adjusting for inflation continues to rise and that that will be too restrictive and tighten financial conditions. Um, but I, I think the bigger issue that, that the Fed has right now is that financial conditions, instead of being tighter, even though that real Fed funds rate has been going up, uh, they've actually been easing. So you have credit spreads that are very tight, you have consumer lending rates that, while they're much higher than they were, they've come down significantly from their peak. Uh, and, and in large part, that's because the market is expecting the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates very aggressively starting in, in May and then continuing to cut into 2025. Um, and that's adjusted a lot of the different borrowing rates and, and a lot of the other uh, things that go into different financial conditions measures. And because of that, uh, that's one reason why I think that the Fed wants to say, okay, we're going to go slow because they don't want to ease financial conditions even more and have another inflationary impulse. So like you said, John, like th that's really the, the fear that the Fed has is that they might be the cause of yet more inflation in the future and that the job's not done. And you're going to hear that again, that the job's not quite done, but we're happy with the progress made so far. That's, that's going to be probably the opening line from Jay Powell when he talks about monetary policy and inflation. Hey, Ira, we, earlier this morning we had uh, Claudia Sam on uh, Sam Consulting and formerly the Fed. Uh, she says the Fed's already too late. They should have already started cutting rates. Is that widely held out there? Or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, there are some people who certainly, and, and some investors who think that they should be, um, just because the economy has slowed significantly and, and you have seen that, um, you know, that gap widen between inflation and the Fed funds rate. But then there's a whole slew of others who look at the real economy and look at what happened with retail sales. You had the JOLTS data that was just out a couple of minutes ago that showed that job openings actually increased in December. Uh, the quits rate, though, kept on falling. So I think that there was kind of a mixed picture there in terms of, uh, of the job market from, from that reading. But, the, but nonetheless, the, um, the, the economy seems to be holding up decently right now. Um, so, so again, like if, if the Federal Reserve is behind the curve, as Ms. Sam uh, suggested, uh, then you know certainly we don't see that in the hard data. Uh, we do see it in other things, like some of the some of the survey data. But again, like you just had on Dana uh, from the uh, from the conference board, the conference board uh, survey of consumer confidence was decent today. So uh, again, there's all these mixed signals right now. Mixed signals usually do lead to a turn in the the economy, but it's much slower this time than you might ex have expected it during prior cycles. And I think a large part of that is we still have a big fiscal impulse, right? We still have deficits that are going to be approaching $2 trillion this fiscal year and, and over the next couple of fiscal years. So that will keep uh, the economy a little bit more robust than it would be normally. Uh, and then secondly, you, you still have uh, consumers that don't have any uh, lack of appetite to spend. So I think that there's uh, th there's a lot of good things still going on in the economy that are going to delay, uh, I think, a recession and a major downturn until much later this year and maybe even into 2025. All right. You brought up fiscal, Iris. So uh, let's talk about the Treasury cut. What did they do? Yes, they, they cut their quarterly borrowing estimate, which, I mean, to me, on the surface, that sounds pretty good. 
<laughs> yeah, so it's a good thing. They, they cut it by about, uh, uh, by about 55 uh, billion dollars. The, the, the Treasury Department, what they do is they have a forecast for a quarter ahead, and they almost always get it at least a little bit wrong, right? But we all don't forecast perfectly um, what, what's going to happen. Uh, so they, they cut the borrowing estimate for this quarter uh, primarily because uh, it, it looks like revenue has been coming in a little bit stronger, meaning tax revenue has been coming in a little bit stronger than they anticipated, um, and and uh, spending has been you know about about flat, and and the fact that so uh, we we can spend more. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's maybe that's part of it, but but uh, it does mean that deficits are are running going to be running a little bit lower than we initially anticipated. Um, it was pretty close to our estimates. We were actually a little bit lower than that. We were one of the lower people within the consensus. A lot of people thought that they were gonna be around $800 billion in net borrowing. We thought it would be under, uh, closer to 700. It kind of came in the middle of that. Um, so yeah, so that means that the Treasury Department probably won't issue as many T-bills as we thought, but they still, we think, will increase the amount of two-year notes, three-year notes, all the way out to 30-year debt, issue a little bit more of that because right now, now they're issuing a ton of T-bills compared to uh, how much they're issuing of other debt. And, um, you know, there's only so much appetite that's going to be out there for short-end paper, uh, especially once the Federal Reserve gets going and starts to, uh, uh, starts to lower interest rates. And Ira, just, you know, on these auctions, remind us again, like, who's buying this stuff? <laughs> uh, so it's mostly domestic investment funds. When you look at, at, uh, at treasury auctions like... Um, uh, the, last last week we had the five year and the seven year. Uh, so you have investors who are just saying, okay, look, we're not going to buy the seven year. The seven year went terribly. Excuse me, the five year went terribly. The seven year did okay because I think people are getting preparing themselves for uh, the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates. And usually, longer term debt does better when uh, when the Fed's cutting interest rates. So you, you have uh, you know people going out and buying that. It, look, savings is still high. There's still relatively uh, high savings rates compared to what we had uh, you know a decade or so ago. So there's still people that have money to put to work, and with interest rates closer to 4% instead of zero, treasuries are an attractive option uh, instead of buying maybe riskier assets that have the chance of default, maybe uh, if revenues slip or profitability slips uh, it, because you think that there's going to be a recession, then you rotate out of other uh, fi fixed income instruments into treasuries and also just you know put your incremental savings into treasury securities. All right, put on your politics hat. You guys <laughs> uh, in the treasury markets, you must game all sorts of things like if there's uh, something unexpectedly happens in the election that, you know, your candidate doesn't win, but the other guy does. Um, have you gained that? What are all well, the so, different possibilities? Yeah, it's interesting because the, yeah, you know, the, the conventional wisdom might be that if there's a Republican in the White House and Congress, that maybe they'll be somewhat more fiscally responsible. Um, that actually historically has not been the case, that typically when you have one party that controls the White House and both houses of Congress, deficits go up. Right, Democrats spend more money, Republicans cut taxes, but both of those have the same net effect of increasing budget deficits and increasing the amount of treasury supply that needs to come out. And, and quite frankly, um, you know, there's probably very little at this point over the next year or two that can be done to quell the two trillion-ish dollars of deficit that's coming, regardless of who's in the White House. Um, you know, our expectation, I, I think the most important thing that's going to come out of this election is not even the fiscal stuff. It's really who's going to be the next Fed chair, right? If, if 
Joe Biden wins the presidency again, maybe Jay Powell will be reappointed. I think that's pretty unlikely if, uh, if Donald Trump or another Republican were to win the White House, uh, that Jay Powell would wind up staying in a seat. I mean, we have to Who remind that? everybody, Jay Powell was Donald Trump's pick. Right. And quite frankly, when that came out, I was pretty surprised that Donald Trump picked him because Jay Powell is kind of a mainstream federal uh, Federal Reserve governor or was at the time. Um, I had expected Donald Trump to pick someone who would be more definitively dovish than uh, th than a mainstream economist or mainstream person. I can't call Jay Powell an economist, but uh, but but nonetheless, the you know, the next the next Fed chair might be the most important thing from a Treasury market and from a rates market point of view that's going to come out of the election cycle. So who do people say might be their pick for for uh, uh, for Fed chair uh, might be the one of the more interesting things that comes out of the election. If people are asked that at a debate or in a town hall or something like that, I, I would certainly be interested to know, is Jay Powell likely to be reappointed or if not him, then who else? But I always thought, I mean, my conventional wisdom was that, yeah, the president makes the pick on the advice of well, pretty much everybody on Wall Street, because if he gets that wrong, you know, you can just kiss your you-know-what goodbye. Yeah, but the, but there are a number of people who I think Wall Street would be okay with, it, and but there's people along the spectrum, right? Like, um, you know, if, if you chose someone like Lyle Brainerd over Powell, then, you know, you get a slightly different outlook on there. You know, Governor Waller versus, versus Jay Powell, again, like you'd have just some nuanced differences in the policy outcomes that you might actually get just because those those people have different opinions. So, um, you know, if you wind up with, uh, you, you go through a whole slew of former governors or former Fed president, uh, you know, federal uh, Federal Reserve regional uh, uh, Fed bank chairs like, you know, James Bullard, for example, is out there. And he might have even a different take and, uh, you know, might be more hawkish or dovish than some of the other potential picks. So, but, but, and I think all of those, if they're known quantities, could probably, uh, Wall Street would probably be okay with them. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, wh what, what price level you right. be at. If you pick a more hawkish person, then maybe, you know, stocks go down, but it's not that the market's not going to function and it's not that, the, you know, the treasury market is suddenly going to implode because you picked, you know, one person who was more, more or less a dovish mainstream person yep. or a hawkish mainstream person. All right, Ira, uh, great stuff. As always, really appreciate you checking in with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. All right, UPS um, had some, I know, just some disappointments as Nora was just, just reporting, laying off some people. Uh, ben Elgin, Bloomberg News, has got a great story out today. FedEx, UPS struggle on EV transition as delivery demand grows, costly electric trucks and charging complications are hampering progress. I didn't even think about that. Like, they got to go electric, too. And if they can't get the trucks and all that kind of stuff, how are they going to get that package to me in 15 minutes? They're going electric because they're, it's good for the environment or they're trying to save money? I don't know. Let's check in with somebody who actually, we, we pay this guy to think about this stuff. Lee Klaskow, uh, Senior Transport, Logistics, and Shipping Analyst, one of the best on the street. We got him at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's down from our Princeton Bureau. Hey, Lee, first, let's just start with the, the news at UPS. Um, I love UPS. I love the brown trucks. Um, they deliver this stuff great. What's going on? The stock hasn't done much in a while. And I know they've got some union issues, which they resolved earlier, and now they're laying off some people and forcing everybody to come back to work. What's happening in our good friends at UPS? 
Yeah, I mean, they're really just reeling from the impact from um, the labor negotiations they had last year. So running up ahead of those negotiations, a lot of shippers were like, you know something, I'm not going to use, use UPS because I might want to use one of their competitors like FedEx or even the Postal Service because I don't know if my stuff is going to be able to get where it needs to go on time. So a lot of that diverted freight, you know, is kind of deleveraging effect on the network, which really weighs on margins. Um, and then, you know, they had the, they had the negotiations, they have a contract in place, which is fantastic for uh, UPS and also for the Teamsters, you know, but a lot of the costs, the initial costs of that new contract are in year one. Uh, and, and so that's like a real big hit to margins. That coupled with the fact it's taking some time for them to win back some of that share. Um, you know, on today's earnings call, uh, management noted that they've won back about 60% of that share. Uh, so it's going to take time for them to get that share back to where it needs to be. And again, these are these are networks. And, and when you're talking about freight transportation, it's all about building density. Because the more stuff you can deliver at the same time, you know, the better the margins are. Uh, and that's what they're really working through right now. And, and you know, and, and I, what I thought was kind of one of the more interesting little tidbits in the call this morning is that they think that this year that the small package volume uh, from an industry standpoint is only going to increase like 1%, uh, which to me I thought was, was a, a little pessimistic. Um, but, you know, all in all, they're really dealing with tepid, tepid demand. Uh, they're dealing with rising costs. And, you know, they're obviously taking those costs pretty seriously, as, as you know. You mentioned earlier, they're they're laying off or planning to lay off uh, or reduce heads, however nicely you want to say it, 12,000 people, uh, and then also they're looking to get uh, they're they're putting their brokerage business, which is called Coyote, uh, under a strategic review. Coyote is the third largest uh, freight broker out there, so um, one of the largest publicly traded ones are C.H. Uh, uh, Robinson. Uh, people might not know that might might may know that name. Also, RxO is another pure play uh, brokerage is Landstar. Uh, there's a couple private ones. A lot of large companies um, like J.B. Hunt have their own brokerage business in-house. You get, um, uh, so, uh, sorry for a series of stupid questions, but this sure. is who you're talking to. Uh, <laughs> what is a freight, what's, what's their role on? What do they do, a freight brokerage? So it's, they're pretty much to get together buyers and sellers of, of freight. So if you think about it, so if you're a shipper and you have a load that you need to get from point A to point B, you might use a broker to find a truck to carry that load. And uh, the broker kind of makes a spread in between what they're charging the shipper and what they're paying the trucking company. What's happened is, you know, it's a very cyclical business. Uh, there's, there's, there's great highs and kind of depressing lows, and margins can be very volatile uh, during the cycle. So this, this so just to back up, this brokerage that they own that they're now getting rid of, they, you could have gone to them and they could have picked a shipper other than you know, the, the, the company that owns them, uh, UPS. Yeah, so, you know, so UPS could potentially use its own in-house brokerage to move a trailer load of freight between two of their sorting facilities. Uh, or if you're Walmart and, you know, you have an extra load that you need to get from your DC to, you know, your uh, Spring Lake Walmart. I don't think there's a Spring <laughs> a Walmart in Spring Lake. Brick uh, <laughs> you know, you might, you might use them because 
either the, 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 the carriers that you're contracted with um, don't have the capacity or you're trying to take advantage of cheap rates in the spot market. And right now, truckload rates are extremely cheap. They've been bouncing along the bottom for quite some time. Uh, and, and so shippers might like to, to leverage that. You know, intermodal uh, is an example. So, you know, the inter intermodal space, which is railroads, um, you know, that's when you see like uh, two containers on top of a, a railroad. Um, you know, they're facing increased competition because of the loose conditions that are in the spot market. Uh, and a lot of those shippers might use brokerage to try to find a load. Uh, I'm sorry, try to find a carrier to carry their loads. I think in there, you it sounded like you just said there was a freight recession or at least implied it. Oh, yeah, it. been calling that for a long time. Okay. Well, there, there has been for about two years I now. mean, how severe uh, is it right now? Um, you know, the way we look at it, we're probably a little optimistic about 2024, uh, kind of a, a glass half full, and, uh, and it's filled with a really good uh, uh, Cabernet. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's we're, we're I'd say we're probably more optimistic than most. Uh, you know, we've been saying that you know we didn't feel that. Uh, the economy necessarily had to go into a regular recession. And just because you go into a freight recession doesn't mean it's going to lead into a, a regular recession. The freight recession is really driven by a number of things. First and foremost is they had really difficult comps during the pandemic. Uh, you know, you were talking about trying to get a refrigerator. Uh, you know, everything was just gummed up. Uh, during the pandemic. And so capacity uh, was in high demand. Uh, and the problem with getting capacity was that there weren't enough workers uh, to either be in the trucks or be on the railroads or be, be in the air freight area. Um, so there was, there was a real issue there. And so we just saw like, um, you know, a backup in demand and then all of a sudden that demand got fulfilled because supply chain started loosening up. Here we are today, you know, you have uh, moderating economic demand, you have, you know, an ISM in negative territory, so, you know, the, the manufacturing economy is not great. Uh, you have some difficult comparisons, so when we look at railroads, um, for example, not to be all over the place, but when you look at railroads, last year was a fantastic year for Canadian grain. This year is going to be a normalized crop, so that's that's a decline in, in volumes that the railroads are going to have to deal with. Um, you know, railroads are Canadian Pacific and Canadian National. Uh, automotive is, is expected to be strong this year, continued for the railroads, uh, but coal is probably going to be weak because the export markets are probably going to uh, start to cool and they have some really serious difficult comparisons. And intermodal uh, is, is really a crapshoot. Uh, you know, we, we're pretty optimistic about the domestic demand, which is more truckload competitive, just because the rails have gotten a lot better at improving their uh, their overall service. So we started talking about UPS, and somehow now we got all across logistics. <laughs> See, that's because Lee this covers the like railroads, <laughs> he covers the trucking companies, he covers the logistics companies, he covers the you know the shipping companies, the big ships on the seas, and he covers it all. So we just call him basically. Logistics analyst. I mean, if you got to get a box from point A to point B and you want to know how to do it, talk to Lee Clasco. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I don't know what to do with this market because we had it just rip there in the last couple of months of 2023 on that Fed pivot. We've had some pretty solid economic data uh, so far this year. The earnings, okay. We'll see with some of the big tech companies uh, this week. Um, but the question is, where do we go in 2024? So let's check in with somebody who does this for a living. Nimrit Kang joins us. She is the Chief Investment Officer at Northstar Asset Management, joining us via Zoom from the town of brotherly love, Philadelphia, PA. I'm a huge fan of Philly. Uh, Nimrit, thanks so much for joining us here again. I don't think a lot of people kind of saw that move higher in stocks, in bond prices at the end of last year. Um, you know, maybe some people thought that pulled some of the performance from 2024 a little bit forward here. So as we finish out a pretty solid January here, Nimrit, what are you telling your clients for 2024? Yeah, we tell our clients to focus on what they know with a lot of certainty. You know, what we've seen in the last two years Fall is a round trip, right? Last year was a pretty strong year for the markets, but it was on the heels of a pretty dismal 2022. So we really did a round trip here in the last two years. And, you know, when we think about broadly for our clients, we expect to be in this era of heightened uncertainty and volatility in the financial markets. We are coming to a reversal of several big trends that have been um, in play for a number of decades almost. You know, the big one is the monetary cycle reversing. So in this environment, we just want our clients to remain focused on what they know with a lot of certainty, which is understanding and clearly communicating what their financial needs are going to be over the next five, 10 years, and then setting appropriate strategic asset allocation based on that. Um, okay, with a monetary cycle reversing, uh, first of all, what's your expectation for the Fed? Uh, the meeting, the two-day meeting ends tomorrow. You know, um, John, as much as I would like to kind of speculate what <laughs> the Fed ahead. is going to be doing and how exactly they're going to say, we take a little bit of a longer term view and we do think there's an upward pressure on the rates right i mean we do have record deficits going on record debt 
And at the same time, our governments have to grapple with some of these big societal ecological challenges. So there's this continued upward pressure on spending, aging demographics. If we take all of that into account, we do think that, you know, the 10 year between the four or five percent range is a more normalized kind of an environment going forward. Now, within that range, it fluctuates all the time based on every single word out of the Bad about uh, you know the speculation on what their next mood move is going to be. Just in 2023, I was looking at the data. The low point for the 10-year was a 3.3, and a high point was 5%. That's a big move for what's usually you know it's um, a very stable asset class, right? Yeah, it, it is. It's interesting, and one of the things I was thinking about, you know, when putting a portfolio together for 2024 is on the fixed income side, I was so surprised that the best performing fixed income category in 2023 was high yield bonds. Um, how do you think about high yield bonds uh, in this environment when it looks like we're going to have rates coming down? We um, take a little bit of a differentiated approach. So on the credit side, we want to be in very high quality bonds, you know, where basically there's a contractual obligation to get the money back. And we take more of the credit or company risk really on the equity side. So that's how really we think about it. On the bond side, we prefer to construct a very laddered uh, portfolio diversified across maturities, but really in very high quality government guaranteed debt. Ooh. Uh, Nimmer, are you 60-40 or have you changed those allocations? Yep. John, the allocation really depends on every client and their individual needs and their investing horizon, right? So we do think that equities have a very strong role in the portfolio as long-term capital appreciation. We do think fixed income here is providing a pretty nice yield income here for a lot of people who are looking for that part as well. But the actual allocation depends on where the clients are in their journey. So... <clears throat> My friend here, John Tucker, he started 2023 long and overweight the Magnificent Seven. He's just doing this radio thing because he loves it. The rest of us have to work on our portfolio in 2024. Do I, do I chase those big tech names? And again, we're going to see a lot of them uh, start reporting earnings uh, tonight. Do I chase them or do I just say, missed that boat? Let me go look at maybe a sector that's not participated. Paul, our approach is to really identify these uh, long-term companies that are solving some of the secular problems and stay invested in them, take opportunities like the market volatility to really size the position appropriately. So, you know, you talked about the Magnificent Seven, not all seven of them, but, you know, for a very long time, we have um, held on to some of the holdings in there um, from the technology because we saw them very playing a very vital role in solving some of the problems, mainly related to empowering small businesses, communities, you know, entrepreneurs all over the world. Now, when we think about, you know, the sectors that have run up, yes, technology has far outperformed. On a two-year basis, though, believe it or not, Magnificent Seven, just on a two-year basis, is up only 14%. So yeah, not point. as ridiculous as it seems just based on 2023 data. But okay. that said, we do think there are plenty of opportunities elsewhere in other areas as well to continue to tilt the portfolio towards those types of compounders as well. I want to get to some, can you do individual names? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, you know, area that we think there's a long-term secular problem is related to water. You know, there's a huge issue around scarcity of water resources, but even just in the U.S., our water infrastructure was built in the 1950s and 60s. So there's a huge need to upgrade um, this water infrastructure to make sure that we're getting the safe quality drinking water that is so essential. You know, just EPA estimates there's 700 billion of investments needed over the next 20 years. So when we have thought about that, we have tried to get exposure to a number of companies that play a very important role across the water infrastructure value chain. So specific names like Xylem. Xylem is very prominent in valves, meters, things like that. What's, what's the ticker symbol? XYL. XYL. XYL, okay. Yep. And it's, you know, Xylem especially has a big mar market position, leading uh, market position in wastewater treatment. Again, a big area of long-term growth and where we think there's ma major um, societal problems that need to be solved. Another name, a small cap, only 700 million in revenues is Badger Meters. They make your utility meters. You know, there's a big upgrade cycle going on from upgrading that manual meter that needed to be read to more um, of those uh, smart meters, which can be read uh, rem remotely. So that's another small cap company, long-term tailwinds. You know, the company just reported excellent uh, 2023 numbers, double-digit revenue earnings. Going forward, you know, we don't expect them to have that kind of a growth, but high single digit through the cycle is a pretty reasonable expectation. And the last one I'll leave you with is Veralto, V-L-T-O is the ticker symbol. It's it's a spinoff from uh, Danaher, very high quality company. You know, 60% comes from water quality type of businesses. They analyze the water quality coming out of our streams, rivers, but also have treatment solutions such as UV filtration, some of the other treatment solutions as well. So again, these are the companies that haven't kind of had the rip-roaring returns we have seen from some of the household names, but long-term, um, very important demand for their products and solutions. Not not the sexiest names in the world, Paul. But. No, but those work. I mean, if you so when you identify a theme like water, for example, Nimrod, do you do you and your team do you screen across the sector for valuation, sales growth? How do you then identify individual names? once you've identified a theme. Exactly, so one of our themes in our portfolio is just related to ecological limits, right? You know, we've had years and decades of extractive growth and we think that's, you know, our natural resources are scarcer and scarcer and we're going to have to learn to cope with these problems. Water falls under that. We identified that a long time back. And knowing that, then we're looking for high quality compounders within that, that are solving, um, for that, you know, solving that particular problem. And when we talk about high quality compounders, you know, Paul, it's your traditional companies that have strong balance sheets, revenue growth, um, free cash flow margins, good deployment of capital, good management track record, all of that same kind of uh, criteria there. On valuation, we take a longer five to 10 year view and we use cash flow based valuation to understand what is the true valuation based on the earnings potential of a company like that. Hey, what's the number one thing on the minds of uh, uh, your clients? You know, when we talk to clients, again, it's different, but it's really around 
understanding that yes we just live in this era of a lot of uncertainty heightened um volatility you know last year this whole thing around um ai really magnified and gave a really new leash to life for these magnificent seven names but longer term people just want people you know our investors our clients are concerned about making sure that they have their financial assets can help them meet their financial needs and goals, right? Yep. And uh, taking a balanced approach and a very risk-aware approach towards constructing those portfolios for them. All right, that's how the, the pros do it. Nimrit Kang, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, Nimrit Kang, Chief Investment Officer, North Star Asset Management. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk UK stocks. Let's talk European stocks. We don't do that as much here but we can do it today because Tim Craighead is here. And Tim Craighead is a European equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That's important because he's based in London at the awesome Bloomberg European headquarters. I have Queen never Victoria been. Street. We got to get you. We got to go. It, it is, is just it is super cool. Yeah, it is just awesome. I mean, and uh, what I like about it, A, it's just a phenomenal building in the city of London, right by the Bank of England. Um, but when, you know, Brexit happened, um, we were, Mike was over there with the mayor of London saying, no, we're doubling down on London, which I thought was very cool because up until Brexit, a credible argument can be made that London was the world's financial capital vis-a-vis -vis New York. A credible argument after a couple of pints at the local pub, and you could make that argument. Now you can't. Right, before remind me before he leaves, I got to ask him about congestion pricing. Okay, so very good. All right, Tim Craighead joins us. Hey, Tim, just give us a sense here. Let's, let's start with the UK here. Uh, how did the UK trade last year? How did that market perform? And, and what's the expectation for this year? So the UK did the same thing last year that it did in 2022, interesting enough, which is a big fat nothing. <laughs> um, and if you think back in 2022, that was a, that that was was good. a stellar performance. Yes. <laughs> it was a hero. Uh, 23, not so much, uh, especially with the rally at the end of the year. So far this year, Pretty much, again, it, it's sort of status quo. And our view is that's kind of where we're stuck. It's a funny thing. The UK market has this very odd um, composition where you've got this big uh, uh, basic material commodity base. You know, you've got metals and you've got oil. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a big um, defensive brand base of companies like Unilever and Diageo, I think uh, whiskeys, mm -hmm. uh, and healthcare, pharma, you know, with GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca. And then you've got a big dose of financials with the big banks like HSBC. Those three, you always end up with a, a driver that's good for one, but bad for the others or vice versa. And quite often they just sort of nix each other. Because you don't have that technology thing which is actually the leader of the U.S. market. The entire TMT group. So you take internet and tech and the good media, yep. uh, e-commerce, the whole kit and caboodle, about 1% of the U.K. market. <laughs> what crazy? was the best performing stock, individual stock? 
uh, Rolls Royce, if memory uh, serves correct, which is this is the engine the, maker, not the, the yes car the, thing. The, yes, the the engine maker that feeds into the rebound in commercial aerospace and defense. And the right, cool so, thing about Rolls Royce is like each of their engines has had a name, like the really. Yeah, well, going back to like World War II, okay, the Merlin, the, the Merlin, Merlin, probably uh, the most P-51. famous engine there, there ever yep. was. Yep. They stuck that in. Well, the Spitfire. I digress. And then the P51D Mustang, and made it the greatest plane in the world. Yeah, so. absolutely. Still my favorite fighter plane, um, the P51. All the Spitfires right there. F14 is number three. Um, all right, Tim. <laughs> I actually think about this we stupid digress. stuff. We digress and digress more. How about Europe here? Uh, a little bit broader kind of markets in terms of the weightings here. How are your clients looking at the European market? So the European market is is reasonably well positioned from the standpoint of a diverse sector base. It still doesn't have the technology right. uh, opportunity set that uh, SAP, the US does. AM. It, you, you've got basically four big tech companies <laughs> there, uh, if you think about it, One five. One is SAP, yep. we all know that. Love, love um, uh, and it's doing fine. Look at its earnings, look at its stock price here as of late. It's been a really good call. Uh, that's one, ASML. Yep. which chip. is chip manufacturing equipment. Uh, Absolutely a must when it comes to making yep. things for, say, NVIDIA with their chipset. You have to have ASML's equipment. Uh, and then you've got uh, semiconductor companies uh, like Infineon and ST Micro, and they feed into more energy transition, autos, industrial applications, things along those lines. But wait, a tech in Europe, I want to lose weight. Aren't, isn't that where those weight loss drugs come from, or initially? <laughs> so that's Novo Nordisk, yeah. uh, and and you know obviously Lilly is coming up as a as a big yeah. second here, but <clears throat> it, it, the pharma industry, pharma uh, business is a big business from a European perspective, no doubt. Uh, you've got really big consumer franchise. You've got luxury goods. And the, the big, one of the bigger businesses over there uh, that is different from here is the, the big high-end luxury uh, yeah, that's auto right. companies, yeah. which are a big play on China. Another difference with Europe versus the U.S. is China is really important over there. I mean, if you big if you, buyers <coughs> of the big German industrial equipment, and well, things like and, that. and it's pervasive. Uh, the UK has a ton of. It's actually the most exposed because you've got companies like uh, um, uh, Rio Tinto and Glencore, the yep. big metals and mining yep. that feeds in. But you've also got the autos. You've also got the industrials. You've got the luxury goods, and all of that adds to roughly a 450 billion euro revenue business from Europe, selling to China, what happens in China matters a lot for Europe, um, which is a different story than what you have here from a US perspective. You add all that together, Europe is okay. It's a lot cheaper from a multiple perspective than the US, but the earnings growth expectations for this year and next year are not as robust as they are here in the US and it holds it back. Do I have to worry about things if I'm a UN, U.S. investor looking to invest in Europe? Do I have to worry about things like uh, the currency translations, et well, cetera? Well, you, you, you do, and it's kind of typical with currency as a double-edged sword. You know, the, I think the conventional wisdom this year is if the Fed cuts early and first, then you've got a weak dollar scenario to be told. Now, if you're a U.S. person and you're buying 
European markets, let's say all else being equal, that's going to be good for you because you're going to be carrying you know Europe over to here, which is a stronger currency. It's it. It actually ends up being negative for the European companies themselves from an earnings translation basis, but it's a different argument. All right, Tim, uh, you've, you've lived in L London a long time. Um, you live just outside of London, so we'll get to congestion pricing. The economy here in the U.S. is good. We had a great GDP print. Inflation's coming down. How's the economy in the U.K.? Yeah, actually, it feels a lot better than necessarily what the headlines might suggest. Uh, I think there are signs that housing prices are possibly stabilizing, certainly like everywhere else, if you end up seeing interest rates coming down and the expectations are for the Bank of England, as well as the European Central Bank to be cutting, uh, then that could be a good thing as well. But um, big election cycle this year from a UK perspective that's going to cause a lot of noise, just like it is here yep. uh, in the US. Um, and uh, yeah, on the ground, you're traveling, you're looking around, you're going places. Which you, know, you do. It, it feels, it feels plenty does it by busy. Bike, though. Right, go to your congestion pricing, because he might not be the okay. right Okay, and everybody should care about this. London did it first, where yep. cars coming into the central part of the city to reduce congestion are charged a fortune. New York City is trying to do that. Yep. But all sorts of, um, are you a fan or like? Uh, whether you like what I'm going to say or not, I guess we'll see. I am a fan. I uh, think it is a good thing from the standpoint. You're never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but he rides his bike to work every day. Yeah, I cycle. Wait, and not like a mile. <laughs> he rides like a long way in all kinds of weather. But, okay. but, but it is a case where between congestion pricing, and they are expanding that congestion zone, uh, as well as increasing things like cycle lanes and other elements of public transport, it, it is an easier place to get around unless you want to drive. <laughs> I don't have a choice, see, though. See, we're going to get Well, John... I'm going to take my bicycle at 2 o'clock in the morning from in, New Jersey. And come through the Lincoln Tunnel. That's yeah, what you're... you don't have to worry about. No, it, we're going to we're gonna work with somebody we know and get so John can expense his congestion pricing. I think I know somebody who can help out with that. Tim Craighead, thanks so much for joining us. Tim Craighead, European equity strategist. And oh, by the way, he's also the director of research over there in Europe, so doing lots of stuff. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.